Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of History After Hours. The recording date on this is Friday, uh, June 12th, 2020. My name is Kevin Pumphrey, and with me, as usual, is Mr. Jeremy Nixon and Mr. Ron Franklin. We are history teachers at Lakeside High School in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And on this podcast, we get into several different things. Uh, We talk a little bit about what it's like during the summer, some of the misconceptions of teachers in the summer, and some of the things that makes this summer a little different. We also talked about China versus the United States at the end of this pandemic and America's place kind of in the world. And then we end on talking about some of the current events and racism in America as best we can see it. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thank you to Abby Hanks for producing this podcast. And now I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Okay, we are recording. This is History After Hours. How are you guys doing? Man, what is up? How are you? This is the time for teachers. Summer break. It's the reason I got into this profession. Right there. When they tell me, what? How many months off in this? Oh, I'll take that job. I forget that normal people go to jobs right now. That's great. There's this this, uh, um, false, fake news kind of thing out there. uh, I had kids who argued with me one time about this. They were like, well, you you get paid for doing nothing in the summer. I'm like, what are you talking about? They go, well, you 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 get paid and and you don't do anything in the summer. And I'm like, you okay? Let's let's clarify that. And mm-hmm. I think we maybe we've talked about this before, but we just for people that don't know, like we're on the three of us anyway. Other people have 12 month contracts and they work more, but I only get paid for nine months work. Right? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. That's why we get paid yeah. like we do. I mean, we get 12 checks, but it's because it's divided out by. 12 but it's still a lot of people don't realize right we don't get actually we technically don't get paid during the summer right yeah it's Um, money i've already earned yeah 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 Yeah. so and it's not like the old school days like my mom was a teacher right and you didn't they left school before memorial day and they didn't go back until after labor day and so they was like june july and august blam and that's not the way that is anymore i mean we're you know we we have a very shortened uh time to actually even time to ourselves in the months that we're not getting paid because we have obligations that tie back into school. Like we have professional development that we have to attend and there are things that we have to do to go and get the rooms ready. And so there, I mean, there's a lot of teachers I know that go up there and work just, they just donate their time. There's a lot of volunteerism mm-hmm. that goes along in this profession for a lot of people. And that's yeah. something else for people to think about too. But you know, on the other hand, glorious summer is a thing still. <laughs> yeah. You have a little more freedom. Yeah. It, but, of course, a lot of people experience this for the first time with the virus because they were at home. Uh-huh. Even though they were working, a lot of them, that's kind of what our summers are like. We're at home, but we're still working. And especially now when we have no idea, you know, we're, me and Nixon were talking before the show, we're thinking, you know, recording video lessons. Are we going to record our classrooms? How are we going to, if the kids choose to stay home? Like, there's so many unknowns. This summer is very different. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, I three I mean, different... I've been... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just saying, I mean, I've been working on, like Kevin said, audio recordings, video recordings, trying to figure out what's best. So as far as, you know, the summer off, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel that yet. Maybe I will later, but, um, you know, we were, have, you had, well, we have all... you had a day just to yourself yet? Cause I haven't. 
I yeah, I did. Um, let's see, what's what's today? Today's Friday. Uh, I think Wednesday of this week, I just stopped and I was just like, no, I'm not going to do anything. Um, but that's been the only one. Every other day, I've been working on. You know, I've got a new class coming up and I'm preparing for that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't buy into this whole we're off for three months thing well, because I've not yeah. seen it yet. <laughs> That's the thing, too, with a new class, you you might be doing a lot of it digitally. You don't really know if it works. Like in a classroom, you can monitor, yeah. adjust, okay, this isn't working. Let's change directions. Y'all aren't getting this. Let's backtrack. But digitally, you're if you're just throwing it out there for the kids and hoping they get it, that is going to be... Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so scared. It, it's... I don't even know... I'm at a panic moment a little bit because I don't know what to do. And then the thought of it not working once I do it really is. Uh, uh, how old of me. a class is AP comparative government? Like how long has that been a thing in Arkansas? Or do you know? I, well, you know, I, I don't know really, but when I was, um, well, I had, I've had students ask me for it for years and um, I thought, well, maybe once I get settled, but when I started looking for other schools who were doing it to try to get information from them, it was really hard to find anybody in Arkansas teaching it. There are very few that I can find, at least on school websites or, you know, class descriptions or pages, website pages. Um, I don't think it's a huge thing. I may be wrong. I may get to the uh, AP APSI in a couple of weeks and there may be like 40 or 50 people involved and I'll be like, whoa. Uh, but I, I think you're really going to like that class, though, especially with this, because we we have a pretty strong uh, uh, group of kids who sort of continually cycle through the school at Lakeside that really like politics and they want to understand more about, especially on the global dynamic. You know, we hook them in early and, yeah. and there's a lot of them that want to trend that way. So I, I think it's going to be a hit. I hope so. Um, I'm really excited for it. And it's it's stuff that I haven't really delved into since I was younger you know the international and the comparative angles and so i'm sort of refreshing my recollection and it's been it's been fun it's been work but um i'm looking forward to it and especially with everything going on in the world right now so yeah and i don't think we do this i don't think we do this enough uh is to tell people who might be listening kind of what we do uh for those of you don't know jeremy nixon was a lawyer and (laughs) is kind of our go-to guy for legal stuff because I don't know much about it. Right, um, yeah, I mean, and now you're yeah. a teacher and your specialty yeah. is government. No surprise, surprise. Um, yeah. Although you did get a gift of economics last year. Uh, <laughs> <gift>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Mr. Franklin uh, is a guru of a broad scope of world history, uh, more than I am for sure. So if, you know, if, if we're talking about international stuff, Franklin has a very broad perspective on that. And if I am good at anything, which I'm not, uh, maybe bass guitar back there. Um, maybe it's U.S. history because I teach advanced U.S. history, so I'm looking at things from the United States angle. But no matter, we're in a weird time, no matter what we're teaching, because this is especially for history teachers or social science teachers. Just, we've never seen this. And so it's, yeah. it's fun, kind of fun, but it's we've, also We've scary. read about things like this, you know, right. when uh, we, we look back through, you know, hundreds of years worth of time frame and you go, well, Here's this moment where it all rolled and and morphed and changed, and there was all of this this drama in the streets and and, and people you know, rising up to challenge the status quo or whatever. And then and then the dynamic of pushing back. There's there's a thing I teach called Hegel's dialectic. Um, a German philosopher Hegel talked about how you would get a thesis basically as a 
as as what life is, what it's become, status quo. People, if there's a middle class in them, and then the working class is below, and so it is a thing that exists. And then over time, in some way, in some fashion, there's going to be an antithesis. Either it's a younger generation that comes up and doesn't see things the same way as the older generation, or the ones who are you know in power. Uh, you you get maybe a working class rise. Maybe it's a social dynamic. Maybe it's a new discovery. Uh, maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's an invention, and whatever it is, or maybe a combination of those things, or creates a, a dynamic where yeah. So now you're in juxtaposition with each other, and it it creates tension on the system, and so there has to be a rectification of that. Something has to something has to it, has, it wants to come back to an equilibrium, and so the idea is that there's a a synthesis of sorts, and that might be a legislative process if that's allowed. That might be uh, uh, it, it might be the status quo hammering the the groups that are opposing them through force. Uh, it might be uh, it might be uh, a purge of the system. It might be a revolution. But whatever it is, it will create out of out of that system. However long it takes, you know, someone will rise up, and either the status quo will will position themselves again. Maybe they incorporate some of the things in that this new group uh, wanted. Maybe they don't. But that new, whatever it is, that new ball of wax, even if it's uh, even if it's the new group that's overthrown the old group, they become the new thesis, and then Let's, eventually something <clears throat> will rise against them, become an antithesis. So it's this continuous, it just this cycle that goes on and on. The meet, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, because once you become, even if you've overthrown a system, now you are the system, and someone's going to oppose you eventually in some sort of way. I think that we're in, in one of those moments, actually, more more yeah, dramatically let- evidenced in since probably the Vietnam era in the civil rights, you know, 60s, 70s. Well, let me push this on you and see what you guys think about this. Since World War II, you can make an argument that the West, and of course, Cold War tensions fueled a lot of this, but the United States kind of led the way, and it helped after in the 90s when Soviet Union fell and all that. But the United States has been a leader, a model, if you will, uh, for the world. Uh, Everyone looked to the United States when things went down. The, a lot of the things that we did were copied in other nations, even China, of course. There, uh, there's a podcast I want to promote a little called Intelligent Squared Debates. It's a great podcast. They get four experts and they hash out, two on one side, two on another, and they hash out. I just listened to one that said <clears throat> that the, the proposition was that the coronavirus would change that dynamic to where China w- would be the new world leader would be the one Now, even though the virus started there, their response and them helping worldwide combined with America's fumbling and taking a step back from global leadership with the America first Trumpism. Do you think, and we don't know, we don't know how this is all going to play out, but do you think the virus uh, and the response to it has fundamentally changed the, the status quo to where China will be slowly rise as the new uh, global leader that the United States has kind of been since World War II? Or do you think, and I know this might depend on the next presidential election, but, or do you think the, the United States will maintain where we've been or go back to the way it was? What's, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> do you want to, Nixon, you want to go or do you want me to go? Mm-hmm. Or do you have any um, thoughts? You, you can go and I'll try to wrap my head around that. Okay. So let me tie in a little bit with what I said just a moment ago with the Hegel's dialectic thing. There's also, coming out of China, coincidentally, um, thousands of years ago, um, during the Zhou Dynasty, um, 
which had overthrown a dynasty known as the Shang. Um, they came up with an idea to explain why dynasties rise and fall, and they ended up calling it the dynastic cycle. And there's a there's a religiosity element to it as well. You know, the gods bless certain groups because they're able and willing to to take on the responsibilities and the needs. And then if you ever lose that mandate of heaven, then all kinds of uh, trouble will befall you and you'll have corrupt leadership and next thing you know it falls apart and somebody new takes over so it's very similar to what i just said with the hegel thing it's just a, a larger uh scenario so go, if i take that and we can see that replicated throughout I, I teach i teach that really hardcore in my world history classes because it's an easy way to kind of see as a predictor almost as when when a group might come crashing down and something else has to rise up out of it or somebody else takes over in, in, in dominance. And we always get to the point where kids go, well, it, where are, where's the United States on a dynastic cycle? Because everybody can fall victim to it. Even the, 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 the multitude of Chinese dynasties that existed through several thousand years, they knew about that. They invented the concept of that, but yet each one fell in turn, depending on how well you put the system together, it might take longer for it to fall apart. But one of the things that helps cause a country to or a, or a nation of people or a dynasty whatever one of the things that helps to push them over the edge to where they can't recover is that they have a corrupted political system bloated bureaucracy high taxation lack of faith in the institution itself hypocrisy at all levels of the of the bureaucracy the the lower classes the working classes the merchants whomever uh, have, a, have a distanced sense of loyalty uh, you have always foreign invaders on the outside looking in, trying to take whatever it is is yours and replace your status. Um, uh, and then if you can't weed out that corruption, you're really on the downhill slide. You military is probably spread way too thin. You're probably spending way too much money on that. You can't defend what you've taken. Maybe you've stopped expanding. You've started to, to contract. Um, you also have a breakdown of law and order. And within that, throw in any one or two uh, um, environmental disasters, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, uh, uh, locust plague, disease plagues, pandemics, anything like that. And, and the system buckles under its own weight because it cannot meet all of the, the people. And then out of that scenario, something then, either, either a new group rises up inside there and tries to take it on, or a new group repositions itself to take over what you used to have. And I'm wondering, and I'm not predicting like you said a while ago, but I'm wondering if this is our moment. Yeah. Because I can check off a lot of boxes on the things that I just said <clears throat> about our country and its current political situation, our current economic crises, our current uh, status in the world, distancing ourselves from friends and allies that we've, that we've, that we've, uh, that we've, uh, promised to protect and defend, um, allowing others to do things that we used to do for ourselves in the name of corporate greed. Um, uh, I, you know, there was a prediction during the Cold War from the Soviet Union that, you know, you give the United States enough rope, it'll hang itself. And I wonder, again, I'm not predicting that. I still think this is a great country and we have all this potential and we have, you know, th there's great dynamics and, and, and but, but at the same time, we're not really taking care of the, the roots of problems and we're letting things fester and we don't really have reform. We have a lot of lip service until we fix those things. 
we're we're not going to improve. And so who's poised to take our spot if we slide, if we continue to slide? That is China because they've got manpower, they've got the political system, they've got the law and order situation under control. Um, like it or not, I mean, you know, we could talk about their human rights violations from our standpoint and, uh, uh, and, and do people have the freedom to choose? Uh, do they get the freedom to say what they want, go where they want, be who they want, uh, listen to what they want? No, not necessarily. So you don't have the same kind of freedoms. Um, but at the same time, are they stronger as a country because of, right? If you compare the two things, China versus the United States, economies are really poised to be about the same size. We, 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 here's the saving grace, I think, and, and I'll let you guys talk. I don't want to dominate the whole thing. But they need, we're their biggest trading partner. We're not the only trading partner they have, same as, you know, they're not the only one we have either, but we're their biggest. They need our ability to import their goods, and they need to import our services, and we need to have this, again, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship that we have with them. I'm not sure who's the parasite in that symbiotic relationship. Yeah, bef and before Nixon responds, I will just jump in real quick and say I did hear a stat that 135 nations now trade more with China than the United States, and with the rail systems that they're building, you know, China is, has been a global leader before for mm -hmm. thousands of years. This is not, you could even look at our dominance as a blip or kind of a aberration, but China has generally, if you look at the scope of history, been a leader. And so, and they, that, I think that mindset that, you know, they play the long game. They're not looking for what's going to happen. You know, if you, if you say anything bad about Trump, one thing you can say is he's just today, whatever's in the moment, whatever's right in front of his eyes on Fox news. China is, they look centuries ahead, I think. Uh, and some of the stuff that they've done since World War II has set them up to where they are now. Well, one of the things um, that you want to think about in that scenario that I just described is the efficiency. Not, I'm, I'm not, I don't necessarily mean how well people enjoy how, if, how the efficiency happens. Again, they, you know, we have people that are going to, in China, they're going to put people to work. You might not have a choice in that. Certain people get to enjoy certain luxuries and, and lifestyles. Some don't. But at the same time, when they want something done, they do it. When the pandemic first started, how many hospitals did they build? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20? In, I'm, I'm exaggerating the number because I don't know exactly, but they built m several hospitals in like Field 11 hospitals, days. Yeah. And they locked people down. Yeah, I mean, we're still, we would still be working on getting permits and greasing somebody's palms so we can make sure that we get that done. Um, so uh, we're, we're, I think that's another one of the, uh, again, I don't want it to sound like I'm bashing the United States because I love this country. I love the freedoms we have. But at the same time, we are not very efficient. Nixon, what's your might come back to haunt us? Do you so think I kind of want Nixon also to focus on our form of government since this is kind of his thing versus China's form of government, which allows them yeah. to to do some of the things that help them become efficient or get ahead. So, yeah, well, that was what I was thinking, sort of in the back of my mind. Anyway, look, our system of federalism um, is hamstring when it comes to future competition, even thinking beyond Trump, who has pushed federalism to, um, I'm not going to say a breaking point, but, uh, you know, a stress point. Um, look, federalism <laughs> has set it up to where we don't respond well to national concerns, whether they be economic, uh, whether they be political, uh, whether they're social, it doesn't matter. Um, because what has happened is this shared sovereignty between the states and the federal government, uh, it it precludes us from acting 
quickly for anything. Um, we him, we haul, we disagree. The country is so politically divided that everything has just, you know, ground to a halt, uh, essentially. And, and that's, you know, that's what I think is probably going to be our down, not downfall, but our problem, because we can't change the system in an easy way. We can't amend the Constitution let, let me, let me in an pose easy this, way. Let me pose a question to you based on it. Yeah. In your opinion, do you think that we would be better off as a country with more political parties or fewer? Uh, well, I mean, that's you know that's kind of hard to say if you're looking at if you're looking at china comparisons uh look they call themselves a multi-party they're not um everybody knows that right. and so in the in the efficiency uh, argument as far as government yeah they're efficient because they're the only you know name in town <laughs> um the argument of the dual system was so or is, I guess, still, uh, so that we come to consensus. You know, the House is supposed to be the um, the hot-headed branch representing all the people, and the Senate's supposed to cool it down, and then the compromise, and then it's supposed to get to the president. Well, that's all gone. I mean, well, that's... Say, okay, under the original, and you, and Kevin, you can jump in because you teach, I can't oh, see you. Can't see that. I was going to say, uh, on that uh, Intelligence Debate Squared podcast, I listened to one on February that was, is the two-party system good for democracy? Oh. And it was, two people were promoting yeah. the multi-party system, and two people made a good argument that our two-party system is actually better than a multi-party system. So it's, it's there's some... Yeah, okay, so my, my question for both of you then is, it, it, under the system, the way it was, is designed, and if it's functioning properly, it, is there a entity... Not necessarily a person, but an entity within inside that government that has the that Truman buck stops here position. Like you, you, you must come to consensus. You can't. I mean, you can try because you can argue, especially in a polarized situation like we have now, right? They they camp out on the extreme ends of the political spectrum and they criticize anybody who moves towards the middle and even vilify them, demonize them. I remember them. I remember uh, 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 Newt Gingrich. Uh, several years back, uh, several elections ago, talking about Mitt the moderate, and he like devil horns came out of us. You know, I'm like, hey, the moderates are evil. That's what you're saying because you're not camped over here with the others who are just like demanding our way or no way. Like, what? Okay, so that's that's going to cause problems. Like, is there anything or any group that just should be the ones who go? All right, that's enough. Here's it. Here's how it's going to happen. Do we have that? I don't think we do. Right? I don't think we do right now. What I think there have been have? times, well, I mean, uh, you know, in a reasoned time, you had the gang of eight, right, in the Senate that would get together, bipartisan, hash things out, try to seek middle ground, but that hasn't worked in years. Um, and well, the argument is, that you... Let, let me extend that for just a second, because in my teaching and kind of thinking about our government, the, the system's one thing, but just like what you said, compromise is kind of the whole point it's been from the beginning. And, and, you know, most people think of our Congress as, you know, 400 and whatever, 35 people getting together. That's, no, it's not true. It's, it's three or four of the leadership getting in a back room, making deals with the president, making deals. You know, you're talking really about a small group of people and then making sure they get the other people in line, you know, with the whip and all. Sure. Is, is, has that, and I think this is what you were going to go through was what's your opinion on do we still have that congressional leadership that can go in a back room and iron stuff out or are we too polarized for that 
Well, the Speaker of the House and the President haven't spoken personally in months, and they didn't speak through the financial crisis, and I would be willing to wager that they haven't spoken through the current um, uh, race relations problem that that we're having. Um, so I'm going to go with a no, <laughs> no there, um, because when the third, what, what is she, third in line, uh, President, Vice President, Speaker of the House in succession is not speaking to the first in the line, we have a problem. Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, Trump provides very little in leadership in that way. Uh, stronger presidents could help get people in line and, and, and compromise and make some, you know, Obama uh, came into office very idealistic. I think once he got in, he saw, oh, no, I've got to make some deals. I've got to compromise. And he did a lot. You know, a lot of people criticize him now for not going far enough on issues. But I think to get anything done, he realized he had to compromise. And we just have a president now that, would rather watch Fox News at 10:50 and tweet about how he should sue CNN for a, a unfavorable poll, which of course yes, no president. Oh my God! Yes. I mean, how ridiculous would that be if Obama said he's going to sue CNN for a poll he didn't agree I with? Demand an apology. What? What in the war? I mean, that's one of one million things, right? I mean, I, I read through y'all's when y'all are going back and forth hardcore. I'm like, oh, something's up, and then I'll start scrolling through when I have a minute. And, you know, it's, it's, we could go back through our text messages and it's, it's a million, it's one of one million things. Sure. But to take the focus off him, which he would hate, um, I, it, you wonder if we were already putting ourselves in this position before the virus and the virus just escalated. Well, that, okay. So that's, that's what I was, what you were talking about. Before. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So there's this, we obviously have a bloated bureaucracy. We obviously have taxation issues because you have certain people in certain corporate entities that aren't paying taxes and and, and so I've had this argument with kids they go well they're paying a lot of taxes but I, I talk about percentages and you know you've got multi-billion dollar corporations that are able to you know squeak around those things and so the, but the money has to come from somewhere and so it all falls on middle class basically um, and then uh, so so all right so but we have the taxation issues right and we have the polarization and we have the lack of compromise uh, we have a, 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 a military industrial complex. You, you know, Nixon talks about the iron triangle thing. I, you know, it, and again, just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. I'm not predicting the end of America, but it is concerning when you watch. History is a great predictor. That's why you study it. You see where the pitfalls are and you then avoid them if you know your history. Well, let uh, me throw in a wrinkle here too. Uh, just pandemic could be something that causes yeah. stress on an already stressed system that could further weaken us. How about this? I used to think because our military was so big, we spent so much money on it and it's a great military. It's number one. There's no question. Nobody can stand toe to toe with us and win. However, we seem to be getting into a period technology wise where maybe because I used to think, well, we're going to be number one as long as our military is number one. I don't know that that's true anymore because of the digital revolution. I, I don't know that you need a big military, fancy military. I think you need some tech guys in a room to do some damage. And I'm wondering if our over bloated military, and I'm not saying it's bloated, I don't want to get into that, but our, our hardcore military that nobody can stand toe to toe with might be rendered useless in the face of new technology. We've spread ourselves thin in conventional warfare terms, uh, but again, like you said, the, the nature of warfare is, is changing. Uh, cyber warfare is probably much more 
the wave of the future. Um, what if you have militant hackers who can control somebody else's nuclear arsenal or shut off their power supplies or, or, or yeah. change the results of elections? I don't know. I, I, I find it interesting to see uh, we're all history teachers. We've grown up in a, a United States that has been pretty consistently on top. We've kind of, you know, the 90s was pretty solid. You know, there were some things going on worldwide, but, you know, we're seeing a huge shift. Well, I remember know. the 70s, though, you know. I was, yeah. a, I was a kid. I was a young kid in the 70s. You don't remember, remember 68, do you? No, I missed that one by a year. Somebody uh, asked Chris Wallace if he could compare 2020 with any year. And he said the closest would be 1968, which I've right. always taught is the craziest year in American history, yeah, I, besides I, maybe 1776. I teach uh, I teach about 68, and we talk about just the crap fest that it was worldwide, but yeah. but also in the United States. So this feels like that, but it, so again, I'm not. We could recover. That's the great thing about us. And 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 if I and I teach this when I tell it to the kids, because again, they they get nervous. Oh, where are we on the on the dynastic cycle scale? Uh, we have the great ability to reinvent ourselves without falling apart. Yeah. And, and so I hope we do. I hope that, that out of this moment, uh, and it is a crisis, um, matter of fact, multiple crises that we will, we can talk about before we're through here. Um, we can fix this, but you have to have people who are willing to do so. Well, that's the and thing when I talk about consensus, when I teach about 68, I teach about all the craziness and the height of the Vietnam war and then the pandemic that happened then. And Nixon to his credit, did something, you know, you could have seen the Soviet Union rise up and the United States take a back seat, but Nixon did some wheeling and dealing with China and, and kind of kept the Cold War at bay and allowed time for the United States to kind of get through the civil rights, get through the, you know, in the seventies weren't great, but then we got Reagan waving the flag and built, and, and that kind of took us over the top there. But you, you kind of wonder if we'd had another president that was like America first and who cares about China, who cares about, you could see 68 could have ended us as a, it didn't, but now 2020 looks more poised because well, China's in a position now. But it, it, but it did in a way. In it did the, in a way, yeah. Right? We, we, had, we changed trajectory after that because, yep. I don't know, it's like, and I think that's probably what we'll do here. Like we've been on this, on this one tech for a while, probably since, I don't know, since the, I don't know, what would you count the, the 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 polarization when you teach American politics? Do you guys teach it like with the Clinton Gingrich moment? Yeah, there, there's a very convincing book out called Red and Blue that I read that that kind of points to Gingrich making politics a national thing and and having red states and blues. There wasn't anything like that before, and you know if you don't have to go very back very far, and you've got you know, you got Democrats in New York and you, you know, you got Southern Democrats and, you know, political parties were everywhere and they, they weren't, you couldn't just carve it out as a national, but it seems to be Gingrich to make the Republican party feasible had to do some things. And one was going to war nationally. And it seems from the nineties, the parties started to crystallize. And then of course, just with every, with nine 11, with every move, we've separated and now we're where we're at, which is, but okay. So, but again, to the point yeah. is that we, we've never really had that Andy Griffith America that people like to have this nostalgia, uh, you know, I mean, maybe certain people grew up in isolation in let's say the fifties. A, a lot of people are nostalgic about the fifties. Oh, life was so much better. Well, it really depends on who you were, right? Yeah, I don't want to live in the fifties. <clears> yeah, no, I mean, you, the massive segregation, 
women's rights, individual rights just in general for any pick a minority group in this country. And they were suffering in certain very specific ways, um, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's uh, African-Americans, whether it's Asian-Americans, feminists, groups that were splintering and doing. Um, uh, could you be a communist in this country? Could you be a socialist in this country just from a political standpoint? Could you be anything other than, you know, what what is patriotism? When did uh, censorship of media come in? What, you know, they attacked the comic books. They put the... The, uh, the 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 rating systems on uh, music and you know race music can't listen to that uh, on uh, on movies. So there's that golden era that people go, oh, it was so good back then. Who are you? who are you talking to? Right? Again, certain people lived in maybe a bubble yeah. uh, that because we didn't have twenty four hour news cycles and you know we didn't have social media. That's part of they, it too, right? Maybe they grew up in a in a in a fairly. Uh, uh, insular world that that protected them from outside nonsense, but it didn't mean those other things weren't going on. So we've always had challenges, and I think this has been another set of challenges that we can work through if we have leadership. Yeah, I think I think there's no one variable right that has made this polarization happen. Uh, I, I, I've I talked about Gingrich kind of starting this, and you can talk about gerrymanderings, voter suppression, but then you can move on to CNN, Fox, social media, blah blah blah. Uh, but it does seem to have gotten worse. Yeah. Have you guys been seeing any any fake uh, charts okay. and graphs and news things about the pandemic or about the you know the the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and you know and and uh, I say resurgence after George Floyd's death, you know the, the 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 massive numbers of protests not just in this country but around the world when that's come to the forefront, police brutality and Kaepernick kneeling and all those things have come back, you know into the into the mainstream consciousness um i haven't really been searching because i've seen so much i've Um, I've got some friends who are really uh, i'm not sure i want to remain associated with some of these folks because they're they're continually pushing out stuff is which is obviously wrong it's it's so skewed. I don't know if it's it's Russian bots or if it's trolls on the internet, and they just you know they flood the market with all kinds of visuals that say, well, look, it's 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 really this, and you didn't know in conspiracy mindedness. Like if you're pushing conspiracy theory stuff right now, you're part of the problem. And some yeah, of the people I, I know are, and I just wondered if you'd seen any because there's some that's just glaringly wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen any, but I mean, this gears up with with you know the election year as well. It, it did in 2016 and I figure it will again. Um, but you know, it's weird because the nineties I teach when I teach the nineties for gov, it's really strange because it's one of the last times when I can point to government functioning sort of the way we thought it would. There was a lot of compromise Clinton governed from the middle liberals looking back, don't like it. Um, but it was a weird bifurcation because politics took a very different turn (laughs) at that point and it did become more national and the the first real i mean the clinton impeachment of course but the first real fault line that i teach is bush versus gore i was going to ask you about that 2000 election yeah 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 and and for me the country doesn't recover um after that um well then you turn around and couple that up with 9-11 yeah we're we're fundamentally different when you take 2000 and 2001 uh, and the timeline and then when we emerge from it we're we're a different country we're different as far as civil liberties go 
um, we're different as we're different as far as the power of the presidency, and we're more much more politically divided. Well, speaking of that division, let's kind of get into the news of the day. And you mentioned uh, George Floyd and the death and the protest worldwide. Let's talk about some things that everybody seems to agree with. Republican, Democrat, whatever, seem to say, at least they provide lip service to say, that the protests are fundamentally good. It is a right to peacefully protest. That seems to be uh, something that everybody says is good. Everybody also says looting bad, generally speaking, no matter if you're Democrat, Republican. There is, in the middle, there's some debate about uh, public property and then you have personal property destruction where do you fall about uh, i think we would all say looting is bad they're using this time that's kind of a screen to do what they want to do the peaceful protest good uh, you know any peaceful protest is good if as long as your you know intentions are good um where do you fall on the destruction of property yes Private property. I, I want to touch property. on the looting for just a second, and, and we can tie, I can segue into the to the destruction of property aspect of it. Um, it's not the first or last time we'll ever see looting. I'm sure. Um, I'm more interested in why people are looting than the fact that they're looting. Does that make any sense at all? Like, what? Why would? What social conditions do you live under? What? community conditions do you live under what cultural conditions do you live under that may have been forced into a certain corner by what policies by what procedures by what uh what 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 system of guidance which is maybe seemingly left you by where now you feel that the only way that you're going to get something is to go out there and take it in in a time of chaos and take advantage of that that's i'm more interested in that what has led people to feel that that that's okay regardless of whether it is okay or not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for crime. I'm not for anyone being harmed. But, but I, but I also see this other moment where people respond to, well, how can you criticize someone looting a target when we look the other way as status quo entities and individuals in this country continuously loot and hoard wealth from the American public itself. What's a worse crime? And white collar crime versus blue collar crime, and we can go down the list of all these different dynamics. And so I, I, th I think that there's a larger conversation to be had than just go, hey, look at that guy stealing TV set from a Target. You know? I think so, you're right, but I think it also does a disservice to the peaceful protest, no matter their intentions and how they got oh, in that situation. I, I think, no, no, no. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, I'm not. I'm not arguing that. I, th right. I think that it, it definitely distracts and it causes a moment where people who are in the middle of this trying to understand it, you know, yeah. allies potentially who, who, who don't live under certain social economic conditions or who are part of a different uh, ethnic group or however you identify. If you're, if you're, if you want to be sympathetic with the protest and yet you see violence and looting on that end and destruction of property and city parts of cities burning down, like you're, that would be a detractor. That would be a deterrent maybe for you to go, well, I don't want to be associated with that aspect of that. I yeah. support this, but I don't support that. Right. So, and a lot yeah, of them do. A lot of them are yelling at looters, stop. You're making us Ultimately, I think, it's counter, I think it's counterproductive to the ultimate cause, which is equality. Right. But I think that it opens up a new conversation about what I, went, what I started with. 
why are they looting to begin with? Like, what, what, what's, what's, what's led you down the path to where you go, yep, here's my shot. Yeah. You know? Well, I think if you look at that, I think there's going to be like a multi-causality. I think you're going to have socioeconomic things, of course. I think you're going to have racial tensions. I think, like you said, you're going to have people who say, look at the multi-million dollar corporations that were built off the back of minimum wage workers who statistically are maybe people of color in certain areas uh, who felt taken advantage of. Um, and I think it's a boiling point. I think it's not just race. I think it's it's um, I think it's socioeconomic. Um, I think it's the president's the president we have and how he handles it and his reactions to it. I mean, was it just yesterday he said, "Oh, our country will deal with racism and we'll deal with it quickly." Yeah, I, really. <laughs> a lot of this to me, and I do want to still. I'm very interested uh, in the property thing, which I want to get to in just a second. But a lot of this to me. And even the stuff, the solutions, defunding the police, some of the stuff that's being thrown out, these are all trying to uh, ease the symptoms of a much bigger problem, like Franklin was saying. And the question is, I mean, how do you solve that problem? Is there legislation you could even pass to, to solve a problem like inner city crime, the desperation of uh, the black community or minorities, and the unfair pay scales? We could go on and on. Um, I, I don't, well, you could, I mean, and then we, you know, we three are educators. What, what is, I know what education is like in our suburban environment. I mean, we're a rural state. We're in a, we're in a tourist town. We have, we're in a district with quite a bit of money. We're, we're paid pretty well, right? We, we have a, we have professionalism. We have good technologies. We have you know, we're continually improving the buildings. We're we, we're building infrastructure in, in right, not just from a personnel standpoint, but also from a facility and equipment standpoint. What's going on in this in the in the areas, inner city, let's just say, wherever in the country, are they able to compete and give service to their community in the same way? And if they can't, is that part of the driving force that's helping to isolate or not helping or causing to isolate people who feel that they don't have any other choice, but then to go out and, and take what they can when they can. Right. And, and I, I mean, just even within our own state, uh, I, I don't, I'm not even going to just say inner city because I know that in any, any financially repressed area, we may find certain elements of desperation and, and it might also have to do with the fact that, in spite of the fact that people may be doing the best they can, the schools can't maybe provide the services that other schools can because they don't have the financial um, wherewithal. And in our state, if you di draw a diagonal from northwest to southeast, the pay scale is different, the facilities are different, the tax base is different, and kids who live in the Delta might not have the same educational opportunities as kids in northwest Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, what, I came from across so, it. And that always comes to, and that comes to a taxation issue, right? Yeah. If you have a low tax base in certain areas, they can't fund and build and grow. And so what's the fair thing to do? But then you, you throw the word socialism out there, and next thing you know, people are all up in your face. So, I, you know, again, I think there's just so many conversations that we have with this that, that then lead to people. And, and, and people are going to yell in the background, I think, well, what about personal responsibility? Why, you know, you have a school. Did you go to school? Did you listen in school? Did you do your stuff? Did you work the way you did? It, okay, so m maybe someone did, maybe someone didn't. Maybe entire communities don't 
uh, focus well on education. But I'm, I'm curious then to see what kind of education they're being offered. How does it speak to them? Does it show them avenues out? Does it, does it actually help them open doors? Or is there something else going on? Like what's drawing them away from if the education system is good uh, and on par with other areas? then what might else be drawing them from that so that they don't take advantage of what's being offered to them? It's not as simple as this person's good, this person's bad. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I think everything is multi-varied, right? There's multi-variables in all of this. One interesting one to me that I keep hearing come up and I think has some legitimacy is that before Great Society, before the Civil Rights Movement, if you were born you know, obviously if you were a minority, you were born at a much lower pay scale, your opportunities were limited and all that is true, but you had more of a chance of having a nuclear family with a mother and father, even in slavery, to be honest, but then, then a white family, the, the divorce rate was way higher in white families. Studies have shown since the civil rights movement and great society and welfare programs, the divorce rate and the breakup of the minority family, if you want to call it that for a lack of a better word, although there's interracial marriages and, you know, that we go down, but the, the lack of a father figure in so many countless families for African-American men is one of the driving factors in gang related incidents and crime and black on black crime and all that. It is an interesting, I still, I still, think, that's more of of I still think it's more of a poverty issue though. Right, but Did even in see, poverty before the civil rights movement, the nuclear black nuclear family was actually, you were less likely to, to be in a broken home, so to speak even in poverty, oh, I see what you're saying. even in slavery, to be honest. And I wonder how much of a, of that has to deal, you know, because a, a woman unmarried or the guy takes off, she has five kids, the government's paying her a certain amount to keep going, but that boy, that's, but not enough to thrive. Right. And then these kids grow up in this barely making it society and their father figures are on the street corner or they, they find a father figure somehow. And I, I just, it, it'd be interesting to have more data as a history teacher and a social science teacher on the importance of the nuclear family. And I don't want to get into religion and that all that, but, but you know. I don't think that that's unique to African-American society, though. Or my, oh, it's or not any, unique. Any no. minority group. I just don't, I don't think it but is. Because, because of their disadvantage already, plus you add the breakup of, you know, it's multi-varied, like I said earlier. Um, oh, but I would, I would also... <laughs> I would also say that wealth stratification has a lot to do with that because, you know, why do you see multi, um, multiple people in the same family having to work, not just parents, but now children or work more than one job? Um, and what does that do to the nuclear family? I, I you know, for yeah. me, it all comes back to that, the, the money factor um, and, and just the wealth and, and look, even how we fund schools in Arkansas is inherently, unfair the property tax values and the millage i mean the district i came from it <laughs> night and day um to to where i'm at now and the opportunities that those that those kids miss out on uh due to funding um they can't keep teachers because they're not competitive with pay they're at state minimums uh their teachers are a revolving door um you know when you go there they say you know please just stay two years because they know they can't compete and so for me, all of this just comes back down to uh, the inequity of, of funding and wealth stratification in America. Well, let me, 
I agree with that completely. I think the, the, the socioeconomic, if you know, how, how many things is that correlated to? I agree completely with that. I do want to also ask a big, broad question, but I try to get a simple answer from each of you. Is racism, as we call it, uh, discriminating based on race, is that less of a problem today than before in American history? Is it got, has it statistically and steadily gotten better, even though it seems, you know, we, we talk a lot about violence the same way, right? Violence has gotten less and less, even though sometimes it seems. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think there's probably some ebb and flow to this, but how do you, is racism less of a factor overall in a person's life than it has been historically 10 years ago? Pick a time. All I can do is give you a white guy perspective on that, my very specific white guy perspective. Yep. I was apparently delusional in thinking that things were better. I, I really did think that, I mean, I know prejudice is a thing. I know racism still exists. I know that there are, um, you know, supremacist groups and the KKK exist. I know those things are real but they're so far removed from my life that they didn't seem real. Yeah. The, uh, they seem like, and I'm not saying that I thought it was imaginary. I just have never, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see it. Uh, and I felt that things had gotten better, especially after Obama's presidency. And maybe like I said, maybe I just, maybe I live in a bubble, you know, yeah. to a certain extent, even being, even being a teacher. Um, with with the with the diverse uh, group that we have at school, um, I really I really thought that we were on a good trend. But then n now it seems that I was mistaken about that, and that and, and maybe not openly racist activity in the time leading up to the Trump era, but subtle things that I that would not have that would not have got my attention. Yeah, that um, somebody who's black in America would have picked up on immediately these dog whistle things, you know, and, and, I, and I'm more attuned to it now because I to, because I do listen to what the president says and I hear his I hear him calling out to his base and all these different things that he does and the things that he tweets and, and the little these little jabs that might have gone over my head before. Now I'm much more my radar is is much more tuned. But isn't that uh, a scary thing too, the dog whistle thing because. If you have your dog whistle tur turned up to 11, you can nearly read it in everywhere, right? Even when it's not there. There's like some people will say, oh, that's a dog whistle. And you're like, what? I thought that was just a factual. Like, you know what I mean? So there's yeah, like a well, balance because I agree with you. I think there's been things that were said that went way over my head. I don't, I don't want to. I'm not saying that, that, um, that I'm misreading. Mm -hmm. I think I was misreading it the other way. Right. Yes, I agree with you, and you I know, probably was too. But there's yeah. also the reverse of that, which oh, yeah, is yeah. just like you see a conspiracy in everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's racist. Well, is it or is it just? You know, yeah. I don't. I mean, so, I, how do y'all feel um, about this? But, uh, but, okay, but let me let me kind of yeah. tie a bow on what I was saying. Part of the reason I kind of felt that way it wasn't just about Obama's presidency because I really did. I, I thought that his, I thought that his, uh, his strength and his leadership and his and his ability to show compassion in times of of yeah. the country and you know the eloquence which i miss so much um and 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 the fact that we have a much more culturally diverse society you mentioned a while ago about interracial marriages and 
you know, it's not unusual. It would have been unusual just just a few decades ago, especially in the South, I guess, yeah. to see interracial marriages, to see uh, children being raised in. It was know, illegal not that long home. ago in some states. Yeah. Yeah, and so and so, but but people don't. Nobody blinks an eye. It's just it's very common and normal. Again, I think that it's another form, another ism that I am now more aware of than ever is again the attacks continuously on the LGBTQ community. I had no idea. I, I didn't know. I really didn't know. I thought things had gotten better. I didn't realize there's so many things that I've been oblivious to. And, and it's not from a lack of, I, really, I thought I was paying attention, but yeah. I can't live somebody else's life, right? I live mine. And people can explain their ex- experiences. And we're seeing that much more now. That's why I'm saying that I'm my radar is kind of tuned in better because I'm hearing more stories and going, oh my God, I didn't realize that that was happening. Isn't it? Well, yeah, ahead, I mean, sorry. I worked... I worked in unemployment. I heard thousands of unemployment hearings and the number of times that people were legitimately fired or quit their job due to racism is astounding. Mm-hmm. Number of times they've quit or been fired due to homophobia or discrimination against the LGBT, LGBT community is astounding. Um, and I didn't realize it until I started working in it and hearing the stories every day and, and, and seeing the hurt hearing about it and and witnessing it firsthand and so uh, you know I think everybody lives in a bubble somewhat and but for me I think that bubble was sort of burst long ago I think we're marginally better I don't think I don't think it's that much better um and you know I think there's an institutional component to that and that's that would take a long time to talk about so I don't want to go down that road that road but um, just the short answer is I don't think that we're all we're that much better. I mean, I think we are. There there are certain things we can point to that are quantifiable, but I think there's still an underbelly of racism that's really prevalent in America. Yeah, we, me and uh, Cindy, my wife, were talking about our kids and how we're raising them. You know, we in race we we started talking about like how I was raised, how my dad was raised, how I experienced my grandfather, and there are there's surface things that I think, like you said, are that are clearly better you know we, we definitely teach our kids not to discriminate you know we they don't even really think about it like I did when I was growing up as much you know I mean so there are, I think there's superficial things but then there's deep-seated stuff that's not as clearly seen that things happen because of racism and it's not clear why or how it's just part of and what's also weird is there's some social things like gay marriage for instance it quickly changed. It, it was it was a long struggle if you were homosexual, it, where you could be in prison, you know, not that long ago. To I remember being at an AP conference, and it's like one day, uh, homosexuality, marriage, gay marriage was illegal, and like the next day it was, and everybody kind of went, okay, well, that check, gay marriage is okay now. Now I understand in the religious community, that could still be a big issue, but then there's other issues like racism, like, it, it, I, I don't know why, you know, certain issues seem to switch and we just move on. And I'm not saying gay marriage is still not an issue because it definitely is. But generally speaking, the population has moved on. I don't, I don't see that becoming illegal again, you know, uh, whereas like something like abortion, that has been a very relevant topic for decades now and it seems to be hotter than ever. What do you attribute some of that too do you is it just the nature of each individual uh social construct is it you know what 
it seems like racism would be something we could move past. But what's the what's the stumbling block? Where where is it at? It's like you can't see it. You know, because we want to get to a point, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, we're just all humans, you know, and we don't even, we don't, because this is a dead end road to me. One of the most disheartening thing when, when this happened, and I think there's stuff coming to light. I think, oh, that's great, the pre peaceful protest. But people constantly on social media going, well, as a white woman, I can't talk on this, or as a black man, I, and to me, dividing us by race is a dead end road. You know, and maybe we have to do that now. Maybe that's just where we're at. We got to divide. I can't talk on this or I can't. I, I definitely won't understand. Right. But I don't like I, I wish we could get past this already where we're I not. But I, but, you know, well, I can't speak for somebody. Right. I can speak to somebody and yeah. I can speak what what how my perspective on what I think that they may be experiencing. That's a very different thing than than me making assumptions about who they are and what they are and, and why, you know what I'm saying? Uh, no. Or I'm not, I can't speak for anyone in the black community. I can't, Yeah, I can't but I can, but I can be an observer. I can be a, a, a conscientious person and, and, and how do you develop empathy and how do you develop a strategy to end problematic things like racism? If you, if you can't have a conversation, if I can't be part of the conversation, how, how am I going to be part of a solution? Right. right. So I can't, like I said, I don't know what anybody else's life is like for that matter. I don't know what your life is like. I didn't, I'm not you. We're not, we're, and that's, I think that's where the complication really, really hammers in because lack of, maybe it's lack of common in different country. And I, I think that's weird too, by the way, where they go, well, you know, the black community or they go, well, you know, the white community, that's not, those aren't really things by the way. I mean, not really because Every, and again, I'll use my perspective because I can't speak to the others because I'm not the others. Uh, I don't live in a black community. Uh, but but the idea that there's a white community is kind of a, there's some mythos involved there. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, every, every, just be, uh, lots of other white people in the world, like, I don't live the way they do. I don't think the way they do. We don't have... A shared commonality just because of our well hey look my skin tone is similar to yours that doesn't yeah, mean part a of polish your jew is white uh a russian orthodox person a white you know uh, a catholic irish white but are they really the same race <laughs> you know i mean it's that's why i get so mad at like you can be proud of your race except if you're white and i'm like white's not a race <laughs> white's a skin pigment you know we we use these words you know all the varieties of things i don't just we and i don't know it's like I think the best people can do is to try to figure out what might make them prejudicial and try to figure out how to get past that. But I think that if, but where do, where do prejudices develop from a lack of understanding? Yeah. And, and right. I don't, if people don't communicate, that's what we're going back to a while ago. If people don't communicate with each other about their wants, needs, desires, hopes, and dreams, which are actually all pretty much in line. I want to raise my kids the way I see fit. I want to live in a, in a, in a decent place. I don't want to fear for my life. I want to be able to, sustain myself. I want to be able to worship however I want to. I want to be left alone. I think that's what a lot of people really want and to have opportunities that present themselves and to not be blocked by other people who don't like me. You don't even know me, but I don't want to do that to you either. But I think, but so you have to kind of fix yourself, you know, but then we have to have a conversation with each other and be willing to listen to each other um, and take each other um, 
on a human level and and then let's start there i don't know how many well, people will be willing to do that though I, I can say that all day long i can't make you do that i can't make anybody else do that same thing with teaching i tell kids all the time they go well um if i, I had a kid ask me one time he said well if i'm not learning something does that mean you're a bad teacher i'm like well learning you know the education is two things like I teach I do my job your job is to try to f learn from what I'm giving you if you're not doing your job I can't fix that I can't make you learn I can't make you think I can't make you do you have to be willing to do that yourself and I think this what we're talking about falls in the same line I can't make somebody not be prejudiced yeah I can show them well, ways and encourage people but I, but people have to do that themselves one thing that goes back to what Kevin was saying earlier why you know why do you see um like, why can't we just turn a corner? Like you use the analogy of uh, LGBT gay marriage, and then it's sort of faded from the national conversation about for or against. But my theory on that is it has to do with the level of government involvement needed to achieve the civil liberty. Because with abortion or with race relations, the government has to take affirmative steps. Whereas something with like LGBT marriage, the government really didn't have to do much follow-up after that. There was a lady in Kentucky, of course, who said, no, I won't, <laughs> I won't grant any licenses. But once that was dealt with, the government really got to step back out of that. And yeah. that's the difference for me. But the just, government, because you, just because you pass yeah. a law that says gay marriage is legal doesn't mean that there are people who just go, oh, yeah, well, it's legal now, so I'm good with it. There are people who are still upset with that. Yeah, you can't legislate sure. morality, right, or what people sure. believe is moral. And you can't, yeah, but what, you can't what force I people to change their the, minds. Yeah, but what I think stokes the fire is how much more the government is involved in it. Uh, because the more the government uh, has to stay involved in it, the more it shows up in elections, the more it shows up on, oh, that's my ideology or that's not my ideology, and the more that this fire can be stoked about it. Uh, and I'm not saying that the LGBT issues aren't that way. The 90s was about gods, gays, and guns. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, it's you, not think that, so much... Go ahead. Do you think that... that prejudices have to die off generationally i think to a certain extent yeah well let me ask you this nixon this is a huge question so don't feel pressure to answer it but i All was right. kind of alluding to this your experience in law and seeing this on a daily basis you know, when, when you ask what is the underlying cause of all this racism, I and mean, if, if you look legally, technically, legally, race shouldn't be an issue. I mean, we have, you know, amendments we have, we've passed all these things. But of course, racism is still around. Is it that is it the fact that there's just a bunch of white nationalists out there that think whites are better? Is it people is a bunch of people scared of immigration? and We're going to turn our country brown? Or is it more structural it's not so much the individual racism of a person i mean i would assume that none of us thinks we're racist but guess what most people in america probably don't think they're racist i have a lot of you know typically redneck friends that go i'm not racist but so very few people think of themselves as racist but yet we still have this problem did you see it more of as, as a structural structural thing or did you see it as personal racism um, well, I mean, I think the short answer is I think there are both. Structurally is where I think we've made progress. But I mean, look at the ratification of the uh, Reconstruction Amendments. Um, you know, you can't say, oh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed and everything was fine. <laughs> um, because that's not how that went. 
um, for yeah, another quick, 100 I teach, years. I teach my kids, yeah. if you were uh, black in the South or the North, for that matter, it would probably be a little safer and better before the Civil War than after because of the protections yeah. that you're talking about are kind of taken away. Yeah, I, I, so structurally, structurally, there's there's improvement, but, you know, when we're not willing to abide by structural improvement. I mean, look at Brown versus Board. Um, you know, there was a real concern that even when it was a unanimous decision that the president might have gone, eh, okay, yeah. enforced it. You know, an Andrew Jackson sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so structurally, yes, we're better. Institutionally, yes, we're better, but that doesn't mean it's it's fixed or solved by any stretch. Uh, and then on the personal level, just seeing and this is just me talking from my experience with employment law, um, seeing people who can say, well, it's my business, I built it, and I'm going to do exactly what I want to do, and nobody can tell me I'm wrong or otherwise, if they have any sort of underlying prejudice or racism, I, they're going to perpetuate it out in, through their business. Through their business, yeah. <clears throat> Well, we, we're going to have to kind of close this thing up. I, we didn't even get into the, what I really wanted to talk about was police brutality, <laughs> defunding the police, but you know, these podcasts, uh, they take a while to load. Right. Um, I would like to do that as things start to develop, but let's end on a, maybe a broader note. Um, well, I can't think of one. Hang on. Let me think. <laughs> the virus is still going. Trump's still president. Um, Summer break, once again, uh, uh. <laughs> that's, that's what I keep swinging for. Cause I, you know, usually I would, I would talk about sports or, but America's back in space. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Space. Just uh, yeah. me and um, Cindy just binged space force on Netflix. <laughs> Not bad. I mean, there's some jabs. They never mention his net. They call him POTUS the whole time, but it POTUS just sent a tweet and it's, you know, it's Steve uh, Carell and yeah. it's, it might be worth your time if you if you get too bored during the summer break. Yeah, yeah I checked the, it out. the idea of, the idea of uh, private companies sending people into space that's pretty cool. Yes, it's it's interesting to think of of space being like our our uh, you know airlines where they're going to be competing and there's going to be other companies rise up and maybe do a tour of the moon. Maybe before we die, well, let's do a podcast on the moon. Ooh. Can we do that? Mooncast. I'll I'll call Elon Musk Crazy. and tell him to hurry it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need to be the first three history teachers on the moon in the weekend. Oh, that would be it. <laughs> yeah, we need to think of something clever to say. I don't know what it would be. but oh, that, that just reminds me of the girl in Space Force, bless her heart. Yes, I know. That's what I was thinking of. Frankly, I'm not going to it now. So I yeah, you might. You know, yeah, I don't want to spoil it. It's pretty new still. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil it. By, by the way, my favorite part of the whole thing was actually in the trailer for it when they're sitting around like it's the D national defense council or whatever, or it's uh, what would they call it? Um, you know, you got the head of the army, you got the head of the Navy. That's the joint chiefs. Joint chiefs. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, he was in there and it's like the president has just started a new branch of the military called the space force. And Steve Carell went, <laughs> you know, and he goes, and you're in charge, <laughs> you know, <laughs> back, cause that was all of our reactions when we heard it was going to be called space force. <laughs> what are we doing? But I guess it's a thing now, or maybe it is, or I don't know. Are we still building a wall, or is that just around the <laughs> White House? <laughs> I don't, I don't know what's going on anymore. Oh, yep. 
how soon we forget. Okay, guys, it's been great. Hope enjoy, and uh, we'll do another one here maybe in a couple weeks. All right, all right, see y'all. See you.